You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel, and today is a special interview with Julie Bogart. Julie, I contacted her a while back. She had had some surgery on vocal cords, and so we decided to put it off until now. And now is a very strange time that we all are experiencing. Um, Up until now, my, you know, interviews have been pre-recorded, and I haven't been really talking about what's going on in the present moment. But we are in the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. This is uh, April. Seventh, I'm in my 24th day of uh, confinement, and uh, Julie, I think, is the perfect person to be speaking to today because she has been she homeschooled her children and has been a great advocate and supporter of those who do want to homeschool. So, I'm super excited to be talking to you. Julie, and hopefully getting some insight on how we can really support parents uh, today as we are all uh, safely staying at home. Sounds good. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Okay. So as, as always, I always like to start my interviews with just a definition, and, and this is your definition of what is the art of parenting to you? What a lovely question. I would say that the art of parenting for me is the opportunity to become intimate with the people I'm closest to. Parenting for me sometimes sounds like a word that is something we do to our children. And rather, I like to think of being a mother as something, uh, as an opportunity to be something to another person. In other words, instead of be controlling who the child becomes or trying to make the child turn out another way, what I'm looking for is an opportunity for that connection. Um, It's an intimacy I never anticipated having the privilege of enjoying in my life and getting to know on that deep level all the inner workings of somebody I made, somebody who is in my care you know, whether adopted or born to me. So it's a long-winded answer, but that's how I think about it. No, and it's a, and it's a beautiful answer because it is such this this dance of intimacy with that person and, and with ourselves, I think, yes. as well. Because I think we, you know, we, we, we discover things about ourselves as we are ushering these 
other humans onto planet Earth. So absolutely, definitely. yes. It's, it's mm-hmm. so primarily parenting is the launch of a brand new relationship, the likes of which you will never experience outside of that dynamic. I think it's such a privilege, and not everyone gets to experience it. And so it's good when I can keep in front of me the privilege that parenting is, not just the heavy or overwhelming responsibility. Yes, yes. And that beautifully said, because I know that, um, you know, some people do suffer with the idea of not being able to to be a parent. But yet, for me, you don't necessarily need to be birthing a human to be a parent. Mm. Uh, I think that we are we can be parents to other humans, you know, in, in, in different ways. So mm, that's, nice. that's my thought at least. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, so before we get a little bit too involved in on conversation, I would love for you to share with uh, the listeners kind of your background and your journey to what you do today with uh, brave, brave learner and brave writer and, and just a little bit about your, your background. Yeah, happy to. So I grew up in Los Angeles, California. My mother is a professional author. I have lived in multiple countries. And by the time I was 25, I had my first child. At the time, I was living in Morocco and realized that the education I might want for my child in the 1980s was not available where we lived. Uh, I got to know other expatriates who were home educating their kids. Homeschooling was brand new to me. I'd never heard the word in my life, uh, but it sent me on a journey. I began reading books about what education at home could look like. And by the time my oldest was five years old, I had made that decision that I would keep my children home. We wound up moving back to California. And for the first five years of my homeschooling journey, I had the joy of living across the condominium space from a woman who became my best friend and mentor. Her name is Dottie. And her three kids were just enough older than mine that she sort of put a flashlight on the path of what it would look like to educate kids at home. During that five-year period, we had picnics. We pretended to be the solar system all together, you know, lining up an inch for every mile. I remember when we realized that even on this tiny fractional scale, our child who would have been Pluto would have needed to be two miles away. And it was that sort of calculation that really blew our minds. We suddenly saw the solar system in its vastness in a way that I had never fully grasped it as a student or even as an adult. Uh, We did uh, Japanese tea parties and a gold rush party. We read books aloud. We did science experiments. We created our own pretend Pony Express using bicycles in our neighborhood. It was through this dynamic experience of sharing learning with my children, with other families, during the meat of the day, not in the leftover energy after a traditional school experience that really captivated me. Uh, I became passionate about this form of education and my children responded so beautifully to it. It's not to say we didn't have hard days. They were children. And of course, there's days that are challenging. And I was giving birth every other year and breastfeeding babies and chasing toddlers. But the overarching experience that we shared was this adventure of learning as a family, not school 
to execute or to govern, but a shared adventure of learning. And that became so vital to me. Um, the internet was, you know, brand new in the middle of the 1990s. I had started homeschooling in 91. And what I discovered very quickly is that all the homeschoolers were the first to barge through the doors of the internet. We were also starving for companionship and other families to trade ideas with. And it was through that experience that I discovered that many of them were insecure about their abilities to write. Now, having grown up with professional writing, having worked as a ghostwriter and an editor myself, I saw an opportunity to bring relief and some support and training to parents. And that's when Brave Writer was born in January of 2000. We've served tens of thousands of families around the globe now. We have a staff of 35. We offer hundreds of classes every year. We have curricula available. Uh, and it was through this sort of experience of raising my own children, who are now adults, as homeschooled children, and working in the home education community that birthed my book, The Brave Learner, which is a capstone project, really. It's me sharing back into the story of education the unique insights gleaned by homeschooling families. Beautiful. Beautiful. And and I'm sure I, I know you've inspired many because that's how I learned of your work. I have some friends here in San Diego that are uh, ex-educators. They were, we all trained together um, to be Montessori uh, mm. teachers. And, and, and two of them have younger children and have decided to uh, go the homeschooling mm. route. So, and, and that's, you know, that's how I discovered your work and I know that they are, yeah, it's, it's very cool. And, and I know that you, um, because I follow you a little bit on, on Instagram and such, and you are a grandmother as well, correct? Brand new. Yes. My little granddaughter is 11 weeks old and I am currently socially distant from her. I can only see her at a, you know, 12 foot space or through the internet, but Yes, it's quite gratifying to have a grandchild. I'm into it. <laughs> so, so this is this is your first one. My very first one. Her okay. name is Lavender, okay. and she's oh, you know beautiful. quite adorable. It's my oldest son. Uh, he's 32 okay. and married just a year, so they had a baby quite quickly. But it's you know people talk about how wonderful grandparenting is, and it is. But what I find even more beautiful is getting to watch my child be a parent. I'm really moved by that. That's been really exciting. Yeah, I, I actually look forward to that moment. Well, I, I thought that maybe you had you had other grandchildren because I was going to ask you if they were being homeschooled and kind of following in your uh, footsteps. But we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll have you back in a few years to know, to know about that, right? <laughs> I actually, I actually joked with my daughter-in-law and said, you know, poor little Lavender, she is going to be subject to all the things I've learned since I stopped homeschooling, right? I have all more new ideas to try on her, but I think they are going to homeschool her. That's what they've told me. So that'll be exciting. Okay, wonderful. Now, um, I do have some questions that came in from homeschoolers, and, and, and I would also like to take a moment to maybe encourage those parents who never really meant to homeschool, but they are finding themselves right now uh, in a situation where they are um, 
having to kind of take on that role. Mm. And, and, you know, like I said, in our intro, it's, it's a delicate time when we're trying to, to navigate these uncharted territories. And so I don't, it's not to, you know, put pressure on parents or anything, because I feel like there's already too much, but it's more to maybe give them some inspiration and support, especially for those parents who do still have work and need to do uh, work at home. Do you, do you have any advice uh, around there for them? I do. And yes, we're in a very unique moment. A lot of parents are suddenly at homeschoolers. That's what I like to call them. They didn't plan on it. They did no research. They certainly weren't expecting to be responsible to supervise the full day of education every day. And they are actually experiencing a different kind of learning than a typical homeschooler because they are having to implement, you know, a teacher's uh, worksheets and Zoom schedule and, you know, execute somebody else's plan for the day. That's not really how homeschoolers operate. That said, we certainly have experience of being around each other 24 hours a day and managing to either do work or go to grad school or run the household in addition to supervising education. So uh, I built my business and did grad school while I was homeschooling. So I do have some experience in this arena. And the first place that I start with everyone, whether you're homeschooling because of choice or by the stay-at-home order of your state, um, the first thing to remember is you are at home. You're not at school. And school is its own institution. The building is designed to herd a large number of children through a set plan every single day of the year to achieve a certain goal by the end of the year. The teacher typically is taller than the students. You know, it's an adult and students are children. Um, Most often, desks or tables are aimed toward the teacher. There is a front of the room, or even if It's one of those more uh, modern spaces where they throw in a couch or they add beanbag chairs. The truth is you really aren't allowed to leave that room without a hall pass. You can't just get up and get a snack or go to the bathroom because you need to pee. There is an institutional structure with some governing principles and authority that run that space and urge cooperation from children. Home is nothing like that. When you come home, you immediately take your shoes off. You flop on the couch. You open the refrigerator and stand there for 10 minutes deciding what to eat. You can get up and go use the bathroom anytime you want. Uh, If you feel like running upstairs and grabbing a different pair of shoes or getting your doll or chasing the dog, you don't ask permission to do these things. You leave the family room and you go do the thing you want to do. So on a subconscious level, intuitively, Your children resist the imposition of the school format on the home they love that allows them to be themselves. So when we're starting this sort of oil and water mixing where we're saying, okay, well, we're going to do schoolwork at home, the trick that we've learned over the years as home educators is we can borrow the properties of home to support the education. It's not the other way around. So typically what happens, even for homeschoolers, the first thing that a parent does is they set up a schoolroom or they set up a desk and they say, okay, this is where the learning is going to happen. 
And then the rest of the house is not like that. And we're going to get up at nine and we're going to give 50 minutes to phonics. And then we're going to have a snack break. They sort of duplicate the school at home. But kids might cooperate with that maybe for a week, maybe for a month. But most kids at a certain point, it all breaks down because they see you, the parent, take a text in the middle of showing them math. They see you walk over to the refrigerator to get the toddler a cup of juice. They see you go and use the bathroom right when you're in the middle of the read aloud. And so inside they know, yeah, this place, it's not really like school. And pretty soon they sort of want to explode out of those constraints. So the question then becomes, how do we urge the learning? How do we still finish the schoolwork that's been assigned to us? To me, that all makes so much sense. You know, I, I, the whole, you know, school system is, is structured for me on, on, you know, 19th century, you know, churning out factory workers. So yes, it's, it's, right. it, you know, it, it makes total sense that that's, you know, not uh, what home is. And, and I guess for me, I'm, and, and so I'll, I'll be perfectly transparent. I was never a homeschooler. Right, uh, right. Never, you know, never. I, I, I fantasized about it here and there, but never like was brave enough to actually make mm-hmm. that leap. And I was actually, you know, a teacher to other, uh, other people's children. Um, but for me, the home is constantly, constantly a learning environment. I yes. mean, there's so much that we can be teaching our children uh, at home. And, and, and these days, I've been really about, you know, just don't worry about it. Like, f- teach them how to fold laundry and and, and, and make food and, and just, yes. you know, do other things. Like, there's plenty of learning that we can do through that. Um, Absolutely. But I know, you know, but I know that there are a lot of um, people listening who are anxious about you know, is my child going to fall behind? Am I going to be able to keep up? All of this. So, so how do we kind of instill that yes. maybe continuum and and make sure that that we do have moments in the day where we we do feel there is some sort of maybe you know structure to to keep our children going, I guess. I I don't know. It's hard for me to ask. It's hard for me to ask it because I don't know as if it's really relevant right now. But I but I know that that people that are yeah, I think it is actually because I talk with so many parents who are dealing with the packet that got sent home or the zoom classes during the day, they have to finish a certain amount of work. And Mm -hmm. what we've learned is this. When you have a task that is more academically oriented, you know, what you said is actually beautiful and true. Learning is happening all the time, whether we're paying attention or not. Kids are learning, you know, how to tease a brother and get a certain reaction. They're learning how to manipulate each other out of the remote control. They're learning, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. how to calculate by playing board games. Like they're learning all the time. When we want them to narrow their focus onto a worksheet or a specific skill set, This is when I say, take advantage of the properties of home. So for example, let's say your child has a writing assignment and they're just balking, they're wilting at the kitchen table. They tell you they have nothing to write. Can you turn this into an experience that doesn't feel like drudgery at the table? One of the ways that you might try is to pull out a clipboard, put the assignment on a clipboard, find the coziest spot in the house, maybe the center of the sectional. 
tuck your child in with a blanket, a clipboard, a pen of their choice, maybe a color that they don't normally get to use at school, and let them pet the cat and do their writing assignment tucked up in the sectional. We sometimes Mm. forget that we can actually take advantage of the home to support the willingness to follow through on that discipline skill. Another Mm -hmm. example, if you've got all these worksheets, let's say, that are um, working through the times tables or the adding tables or subtraction, could you do those orally and just write the answers in for your first or second grader? And could you do them like this? I used to take two chairs and stand them up in my living room, and I would have my two youngest kids clamber up on top of the chairs. Then I would pull the cushions off of the couch and put those in front of the chairs. And then we would rehearse math facts. Two times two is, they'd say four, I'd say blast off. They'd jump up to the sky and land in the pillow clouds. (laughs) And all of the sudden, their energy, their interest, their willingness to participate was elevated because they were using their bodies. They were in a playful mode. They were getting personal attention from me. With older kids, you could be throwing a lacrosse ball back and forth or a Frisbee. You could do it while they're jumping on the trampoline. Uh, To work on some of those math skills, you can say to your kids, all right, let's do this one worksheet, but then when we're done, let's play Monopoly. Let's play a board game. Let's play cards. Let's reinforce these skills and do it as a fun family experience, not just drudgery of flashcards and drilling. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like that. Another. Another idea that I think is helpful, you know, will depend on the assigned reading. But in our family, we did a lot of reading a book, watching the movie. And then we would have mm. a big, juicy conversation of literary analysis about that movie uh, and, one of the, and book. One of the ways mm-hmm. that we would encourage that, we would be watching the movie and everyone's got popcorn and their dad and I would take turns with the remote, pausing occasionally during the movie. And we would say questions like these. All right, so who are we rooting for now? <laughs> and they would say somebody. We'd say, well, well, who don't we like? Who are we rooting against? And they'd say that. And then I would say, well, how did we know? How do we know to root for this guy and not this guy? Why is she a good character? Why is she not a good character? What was the clue? How did we put that together? We can ask questions like, what has to happen in this story for this movie or this book to be over? How do we know that? What clues told us what has to happen for it to end? Do we think it will happen or do we think it won't happen? Will we be glad it happens or not glad? What do you think the author wants us to feel? Can you tell? These are the kinds of learning opportunities that school doesn't have time to afford. If you've got 25, 30 kids, you can ask those questions and get a student to raise their hand, but the majority of the room is still silent. In a family of five, six, seven, three, four, however many people, you actually have the opportunity for everyone to share, to participate. And I really recommend this open-ended discussion, not who is the protagonist, what is the climax. You don't need to use that language to invite their thinking into the experience. Right. I love that. I love that. And I love the example that you gave uh, for the math facts, the the movement. Yes. Uh, Because we know, I mean, we know from research that movement is so important. And, 
in traditional schools, we tend to, you know, subject our little ones to sitting still, which is right. so unnatural, so unnatural. Because when you started talking about the, the clipboard and the, you know, yes. the couch, I, I, yesterday I snuggled up on the couch by the fire because that's where I wanted to, to yeah. run and work, you know, so I give myself permission to do that. Why not the children? And then, and then also the idea of the clipboard I like where they could be walking around, definitely, you know, walking back and forth in the backyard and still uh, writing. So, so really important to, and and it's funny because when you were talking, I'm, I'm thinking like, all of these children are going to be like way ahead of the game <laughs> when they do get to go back to school because they're, they're having fun learning. That's amazing. I, no, that's true. And you know, the thing about the clipboard is it feels official. Like they're almost exactly. child 13 and under, you hand them a clipboard, they want to write on it. And that's what I'm saying. We're trying to create an environment that draws participation, not that mm-hmm. enforces participation. Home has that opportunity and it's worth exploring it. Another example I'll give you is um, with my own children. I personally have a passion for poetry, but almost every adult I've ever met does not. (laughs) Most adults tell me that they're intimidated by it, that they hated learning about it in school. And I worried that my children would one day encounter that point of view and adopt it. And I did not want that for them. So when my, uh, I have five kids, when my oldest child was about nine years old or 10 years old, and my next one down was seven or eight, I, I had been reading them, nursery rhymes, tongue twisters, all that kind of stuff for their early childhood. But now I wanted these early readers to read it. And so I suddenly realized I value poetry, but what do my kids value? Could I pair it with something they love? And I realized it was tea parties. My daughter, Johanna, and I often would have British tea in the afternoon and make a little treat or a snack to go with it. And so one day I just said to them, hey, everybody, I need you to decorate the table. I need a tablecloth and grandma's good china teacups. They're like, why? I'm like, well, just do it. I'll tell you as we go. So they start setting the table. And then I said, hmm, I think we need to make muffins. Which kind should we make? Well, now they're all in. They're helping me make the muffins. Said, you know, I don't see a centerpiece. Can someone go outside and pick some flowers? They go outside in my condo area in Southern California. You have to know there are no flowers. There's like dandelions, right? right? But they found whatever artifacts they could, brought them in. We lit candles. Candles are like just absolute magic with children. You light a candle, they come Mm -hmm. to the table. Uh, especially if they get to strike the match and blow it out and run their finger through it a few times. So I'll warn you that that will happen as well. And then we set the table with the muffins and I brought stacks of books, poetry books to the table. And I poured tea for everyone. And I said, we have poems on the table. Anyone who wants to page through and find one to read to the group, I'd love to hear it while we're eating our snack and drinking our tea. That first poetry tea time lasted 20 minutes everyone taking turns, the smallest children who couldn't read just pointing to a poem and I would read it for them. We did it almost every week of their childhoods into high school, inviting public school friends over. My adult children started poetry slams in their colleges. My son Jacob was a uh, resident assistant at Ohio State. His dorm floor was all boys. He had poetry tea times. And Mm. to this day as adults, their facility with language, 
their ability to appreciate wordplay, their insight into what they read, all that foundation was laid because we had tea parties when we read poetry. That's that's the kind of maximizing of the home space that allows learning, right? That allows learning to be an invitation rather than a requirement. Yes, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it's, it's, thank you for that, because that was actually one of the questions that I got from a listener as to what inspired poetry and oh, tea. Nice. And in, parenthes- and in parentheses, I just want you to know that it's, I love five hearts, this inspiration. <laughs> and, and I know, I know she does it. Uh, this is a mom that has two daughters and, yes. and does it regularly and invites friends um, when we can at the house. So, so beautiful. Thank you for that. We do have a quick start guide for free on poetryteatime.com. If somebody okay. is, you know, listening to me and thinking, but I'm really nervous. I don't know what poems to pick, or I don't really mm-hmm. get what you mean about setting the table. We have a quick quick start guide and then a poetry book list that you can take with you to the library or use on Amazon so that you have a good way to get started if poetry isn't your thing. I will reassure parents of this. Even if you hate poetry or think you do, you don't hate children's poetry. Children's poetry is delightful. It's funny. You will understand it. And that's enough. You don't have to suddenly learn John Donne poetry to feel like you're understanding the power of poetry. You sing song lyrics every day of your life. This is the way to begin, and you will discover that language suddenly comes to life for you when you're reading, when you're watching a sitcom, when you're interacting with friends, when you're listening to a talk show host on the radio. And that's the goal of it. It's not necessarily to become an expert in poetry. It's to become more conscious of the power of language, how language functions in society and between each other. Mm, beautiful and, and and such an important awareness to have to to be good communicators mm. too. So very nice. Uh, one one thing that um, a question that I did receive, and this is about how you inspire children to write. So so you mentioned a little bit about you know the the you know the clipboard and everything, but this this would be more maybe in in you know the the homeschooling environment where you are kind of aiming for that. I guess that that is the goal. Is is so? How do you inspire children? And then and then the the next kind of part of the question, and I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to answer both of them, is what are the basics and fundamentals children should establish in writing. Oh my goodness. Yes, this yeah. could take a, an hour, but I'm going okay. to give you okay. um I'm going to give you the cliff notes. <laughs> yes, I am. And I'm going to okay. give you practices that you can do immediately after this podcast. Oh, perfect. So let's perfect. let's start with that. But I'm or let let's get to that. But let me start first with a slight a, a, an abbreviated philosophical understanding of writing because I think it's the foundation for everything. We tend to think of writing as mechanics. So if somebody tells me their eight-year-old daughter is a bad writer, I don't actually know what the parent means. Often the parent just means she's not good at spelling. Although what eight-year-old is, I mean, they shouldn't be good at spelling at eight. They don't even hardly know how to read. But they might mean spelling. They might mean the physical act of handwriting. They might mean she's writing run-on sentences and doesn't know how to use periods. 
They might mean she stares at a blank page and can't get anything out. They might mean that she doesn't know how to write a five-paragraph essay because some parents actually think an eight-year-old should be able to do that. Or they just might mean my child is allergic to everything related to writing. The reason it's important to notice that the word writing conflates all that is that we have been taught, especially in traditional education, that when you get a grade on writing, any one of those pieces of the writing experience can lower your grade. So Mm -hmm. even if you have great content, if you misspell too many words, your grade goes down, as though your content is somehow ruined by bad spelling. Or Mm -hmm. conversely, let's say you use punctuation perfectly, spell every word perfectly, and your content isn't that great. You're not going to get rewarded for all of the great mechanics. You're only going to get knocked down because the content didn't match what a teacher was expecting. In other words, writing is a variety of skills that come together for a symphonic performance. And unfortunately, what ends up happening for most of us is we do not grow at the same rate of skill in all of them simultaneously. And as a result, so many powerful thinkers and communicators do not think they're good writers because somewhere along the line, they were graded in a way that highlighted the skill that they weren't as strong at against their powerful skills. And they determined they would never get it all together successfully. So stepping back from that then, we have to ask, what is writing? And writing is, in my view, three things. There is transcription. That is the ability to read and handwrite so that you know something about spelling, punctuation, and how to either type or use a pencil. But that's just transcription. It's not writing. The second piece of this writing triangle is original thought. Those are the ideas and words that live inside your brain that get externalized either verbally by talking or physically by transcription. Writing at its most basic is your voice, the things you want to communicate. And we can hire people to transcribe them. You know, Stephen Hawking could not type. He had to use his little communication device with his eyes or whatever, and eventually someone edited it and sent it off to become a book. Uh, Winston Churchill had a secretary follow him around with a typewriter while he dictated his speeches. Who gets the byline? The secretary who typed it accurately or Winston? So we know that the heart of writing is content. Transcription is second. And then the third aspect of writing in this triangle then is the format the container that holds the ideas, whether that's a speech or an essay or a short story or a tongue twister or a tweet. doesn't matter. The container is just a container. So when we separate these three, at least we begin to see why an eight-year-old who is verbally fluent has a very sophisticated vocabulary by age eight is suddenly not getting A's in writing. Because, well, her spelling hasn't caught up to her vocabulary yet. Her word usage far outpaces her ability to spell it. Her sentence structure orally is far beyond what she knows how to do with a period and capital letters. And so when we read her writing, 
We've been trained to see these professionally edited pieces of writing every day of our lives online, in books, in newspapers. And then we see an eight-year-old's attempt and we think, oh, she doesn't know how to write. But she Mm. does. The interior Mm. person who communicates knows how to write. She just isn't skilled in transcription. So all of that Mm. background to say, we need to separate the skills and let them grow at their own rate and allow them to come together as the skills evolve. So in Brave Writer, the first place we start is not connecting a child to a pencil, but to their own writing voice. So here's Mm. the first practice I'm going to share with you. We call it Jot It Down. And here's what it looks like. You are going to capture your child's thoughts for them in writing during a spontaneous act of self-expression. In other words, you'll be stir-frying dinner. Little Diana is going to come running into the kitchen to talk to you about the level she just beat on a video game. And she's Mm going to launch into it with this amazing fluency. And you're going to suddenly go, oh, this is that moment Julie was talking about. She's in a white hot streak of passionate language. You're going to turn off the stove, grab the back of a supermarket receipt or an envelope, and you're just going to start jotting down her fluent language right then. You can't ask for it. That will ruin it. Don't say to her, okay, honey, it's nine in the morning. I need you to tell me a story to write down. That's not what I mean. Wait for it. Be alert to it. Now, she will Mm -hmm. see you writing while she's talking. She will ask you, mommy, what are you doing? Daddy, what are you doing? And these are the exact words you say. (laughs) I'm going to give you a script. You're going to say, oh, sweetheart, this is so good. I don't want to forget it. So I'm writing it down. Mm, Beautiful. Now, most kids who hear that, they kind of square their shoulders and go for 10 more minutes Um, (laughs) because they know, right? Writing values your words. If you're putting it in writing, it must be important. Now, occasionally there's a child who feels like you're not connecting and they might say, don't do that. Just stop what you're doing. Listen like you're a digital recorder. And the second they leave, jot down as much of it as you can remember, as close to what they said as you can. So the idea is jot down their thoughts when they're saying them, when they care the most. That night at dinner, I want you to pull out that little envelope where you scribbled down their thoughts and announce to the family, you know, Diana was telling me about that video game she beat today. And oh my gosh, it was so good. I had to write it down. And I just wanted to share it with everybody because it was really good. And read it to the family. Here's what happens. Your child, for the first time, discovers that the words you ask for on the page already live inside them. Mm. They learn that the purpose of those words getting written down is so they don't disappear forever, but an interested audience can keep enjoying them. They learn that you actually have this skill that they don't have yet, which is transcribing the thoughts. This is all happening on an intuitive level. They're not listing these in their heads, but this is the effect. I recommend, yeah, so then I just recommend that you take that piece of writing and you toss it in the library basket. And every day when you read aloud, you say, oh my gosh, here's Diana's writing. Let's read that again. It was so good. So you start to treat their writing as the valuable piece of communication that it is. And you allow them to experience the pleasure of being read 
which is what fosters a desire to write. That's why Twitter, Facebook, social media in general are so popular. We all want to be read. We had no Mm. shortage of things to read before social media. (laughs) Social media wasn't supplying us suddenly with reading material that we couldn't get. It gave us a place to communicate so we would be read. And that's Mm. the heart of the writing impulse, wanting to be read. So that's the first practice that capitalizes on this original thought idea. Yeah, beautiful. And and one thing, um, when you were describing that, I was thinking, well, why? W- I could also record it, but I'm I'm thinking that because you're actually writing it, so you you have the act of of pen to paper. That is what is also modeling to the child what is writing, as opposed to just recording the the story that they're telling us. You. You make me so happy. I think you're the first interviewer I've ever had who understood that before I told them that. So thank mm. you for that. That's, I mean, you're Montessori trained. You're a smart cookie. <laughs> um, but yes, that is exactly right. Now, yeah, okay. if okay. you get into this practice on the regular, which I recommend, there may be a point where recording is valuable. But here's okay. what I recommend, because some kids, they're just so prolific and it's it's hard to do. What I recommend then is two things. One is type it in front of them. Let them hear their voice while you're pausing the recorder and typing it up so that they can see that that's what transcription is. But the second thing is for kids who have a little bit of pencil proficiency, they can handwrite from a recording or type from a recording of their own words. And what this does for that child, like the 10, 11, 12-year-old who's struggling is you've given them a mid-step. They don't have to go from thinking the thought to thinking about spelling, punctuation, and handwriting all in one step. They get the idea out first, and then when they go to transcribe, they can focus exclusively on the mechanics. So you're Mm -hmm. giving them this bridge. And that's actually the second part of this whole um, skill set. How do we work on the mechanics? We work on the mechanics using someone else's writing initially. We use copy work. We copy Laura Ingalls Wilder, E.B. White. We copy their words and we focus exclusively on the mechanics. We don't also require our brains to come up with ideas. So we separate these two at the beginning. We start by letting the ideas flow without any attention to mechanics. And we work on mechanics without any attention to original thought. And we only do correction on mechanics when we're working specifically on those mechanics. We do not expect original writing to have perfect mechanics. Um, And over time, those things borrow into each other. So the practice that we do, the second practice I can recommend, once your child catches a vision for what writing can be, that it comes from within, we can now encourage them to try the practice called free writing. Free writing is where you set a timer for two or three minutes. It can work its way up to five and ten. And you write whatever is in your mind, like following the ticker tape of words, even words like, this is stupid, this is dumb, I don't know why I have to do this, why is my mom making me write? Like you write literally the thoughts. And as you get them on the page, you don't worry about spelling or punctuation. You are literally just training your hand to obey your words in your mind. And that becomes a fluency over time. And since you are working on the mechanics separately, 
those eventually get borrowed in as those skills become automated. So free writing mm-hmm. is awesome. Free writing is something that I recommend parents do with their kids. It should never okay. be done to them. So if you're okay. going to have a free writing session, sit everyone at the table, mom, dad, kids, whoever is responsible, grandma, you know, bonus mom, whoever lives at your house, uh, put the sheets of paper out, set the timer, and everyone writes. And then what at a the end, tradition. Yeah. oh, it's awesome. And then yeah, at the end, yeah. you can offer an opportunity to read or not. Uh, sometimes I recommend that you don't read them at all the first time. Everybody just okay. writes and there's no reading so that your okay. kids can have one experience of true safety where they know mom mm-hmm. is never going to look at this. Uh, it's a very mm-hmm. different feeling for them to write and know that there's no performance required. But that's a way to slowly build this confidence and give your kids an opportunity to get in touch with what they have to say, not just how mm-hmm. they punctuate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that to me is so beautiful because the, the fact that you're doing it together mm. is, 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 I mean, just feels and sounds so delightful. And it reminds me of a um, journaling prompt that I was doing um, a few months back, which I, I'm thinking I should get back to. But it's when you're when you've meditated and uh, or, or, or prayed, whatever your practice is, is to sit down and really the first sentence is, what would you have me know? And That's then free beautiful. writing for free writing for, you know, however long you want to put the timer on. And for me, that was just so amazing because you really are in a flow and just I don't know, all these downloads are, are, are being written on a page that, that, that was amazing. So beautiful. And to be able to do that with your children would be um, quite amazing. It's lovely. I love that. I, I actually yeah. love that question. What would you have me yeah. know? That's beautiful. Yeah, no, very nice. Um, beautiful. Well, I, I, I'm being <laughs> mindful of time and uh, I have so many more questions, but I think um, it would be maybe good to, to wrap things up. Um, and one thing that I always love to ask uh, my guest is, so you told us that your eldest, you said was 32? Yes. 32. So if you were to go back to 33 years ago in mm-hmm. Morocco, I'm assuming yes. when you were expecting him, right? Uh, what wise words would you tell yourself uh, knowing all that you know today? Wow. I think the, I think the thing that I have learned especially through Noah, is that my ideals are not nearly as important as the reality of the child in front of me. That it was far Mm. more important, that it is far more important to be interested in the person I have rather than the person I hope I will have someday. Mm. Mm. That warms my heart. Mm. So true. He so taught sure, that to beautiful. me every day of his life. So I often say Noah was the per, the child who was born to teach me to be human. And and isn't that true of our firstborn? Yes. Too? Yes. Because they kind of set they kind of set the stage for for what is to come. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Julie, any any parting words or, or conclusions that you would like to leave our listeners with today? You know, the one piece that I wanted to address that I, I left out, I think you asked it and I didn't quite get to it, is just this working at home while you're doing the educating. Yes, yes. I have a couple quick tips for that that I think could help. Uh, and the first one is if you have a period in your day where you really need to give devoted attention to your work, make sure you have saved something for your kids to look forward to, whether it's a movie, brand new game, something that they are going to eat together, something that will be absorbing, but that is completely what they want to do, playing a video game, and to not feel guilty about that. To gain their cooperation, sometimes giving them that true indulgence will allow you to have the satisfying couple of hours you need to really hunker down. I learned that over time, and I never felt guilty about it because once I saw the dividends it paid in my work, when I returned, they were usually happy and we were able to then do something together uh, as opposed to trying to keep them occupied and away from me when they were whining, tired bored and distracted. So I know this is a really challenging period. You can't really do it wrong. If you're connected to your children and you are honest with them about your needs and ask for their help and vice versa, find out their needs and offer to help them, you can create a family routine that will start to feel good as opposed to something that's straining the seams all the time. So- You know, connection is the key, right? I I know that's what your whole podcast is about. And it's really honoring the personhood of each member of the family, not prioritizing one over the other. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and I love that you have it as a collaborative work. You know, we're we're now being asked to work together. That's we're, right. We're, we're, this is our new community, is our family unit of who we're staying at home with. And, beautiful. And, you know, so... Thank you for that. Uh, well, this has been a, a sheer delight. I am so glad that um, I was uh, shown your work and, and, and your inspiration. So thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us. It was delightful. Thank you for having me. It was great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.